Hello, and welcome to Half-Blind Hecklers, episode 34. We have got a show for you today. Today, we're going to talk about a few different things. We're going to talk about Trump getting COVID over the weekend. We're going to talk about how he got it, he went to the hospital for it, then he came back. And then he came back and he said a few things and people went berserk. Then we're going to talk about the virus and how the government strategies that they're using aren't scientific. They're not. And because they're not scientific, it's causing a whole bunch of chaos and anger and insanity. And then we're going to talk about race relations and how blacks and whites and liberals and conservatives are treated differently. And then finally, we're going to talk about some really breaking news and how a grand jury has indicted the Mark and Patricia McCloskey family. Uh, they were the St. Louis couple that brandished a gun at violent mobs back in June. So without further ado, let's get going. So as I said, Trump acquired coronavirus on Thursday. He went to the hospital. And at first, the, the leftists were freaking out. They're like, he deserves this. He deserves to die because he let lots of people die. Not really true if you look at any of the irrelevant data, but that's the left for you. And then he spent some time at the hospital, got fairly good care. And then yesterday, he left the hospital. So I made a post on Twitter saying I'll be leaving the Great Walter Reed Medical Center today. Feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Now, some of that, of course, is fairly irrelevant. But the points about don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life, are exceptionally important. It's one of the best messages that Trump has said going out of the virus because people are so afraid of the virus that it has ruled their lives. They've made ridiculous propositions. They've The people in power have made grandiose measures to control us, such as, of course, mandatory mask bylaws, stay-in-place orders, and the lockdown that we've seen around the world more intense in some areas than others, but the lockdown has been significant and has had serious effects. Now, this is not a grandiose statement. It is actually a very sensible statement. But even though it's a sensible statement, the media went insane. This is NBC. For those reeling from COVID losses, Trump comes across as boastful and insensitive. I think he's in a bubble. Experience is supposed to be the best teacher, but the lessons of COVID-19 are lost on Donald Trump. According to many people who have lost loved ones in the disease. That was the reaction of several still grieving after Trump was released from hospital. Declared, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Yes. He didn't say that we should be pushing it off and that it should be willy-nilly. But he said, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Because some quick facts about COVID, 99.7% survival rate, general population. If you go into the higher age groups, yes, of course, there are going to be a higher risk of dying. If you go into the lower age groups, the risk of dying is like one in 60,000. And if you're afraid of pushing your kids and telling them to go to school with the risk of one in 60,000, then just put them in a bubble now because you're a hopeless parent. Okay. And like the transition from, from the media and from leftists were, oh, it was karma that he got it. Like he's not recovering for it. It's serious. He's going to die. I hope he dies. And then it went to, he's recovering. He was just faking it. And now that he's recovered and said, hey, like you shouldn't be afraid of this. It's he's mean. He doesn't understand coronavirus. It's like, well, I think he understands it reasonably well. Here's, here's something from Huffington Post. 
wildest coronavirus claim yet gets instant fact check on Twitter. He attempted to downplay the coronavirus pandemic on Monday as the U.S. death toll approached 200,000 by saying it affects elderly people with heart problems and other problems. That's true! That's what it really affects. If you have other comorbidities, we went over the comorbidity report a few weeks ago, if you have other comorbidities, your risk of death is much higher. The amount of people that died in the United States with comorbidities like the flu were 70,000. How much of that 200,000 were A, overreported, and B, had both coronavirus and the flu, and they both contributed to the death? In some states, thousands of people, nobody young, they have a strong immune system, who knows? But it affects virtually nobody. That's true. The UN, or the WHO actually said today that there are, I think, up to 10% of people in the world who have had it so far. Let's do a quick check. Actually, I'll do a quick check on air. Coronavirus. Sorry for my spelling. Coronavirus worldometer. We'll see that the current, so coronavirus update, 35 million cases. So that's at least double that. That's 1 million, okay? I would say their number of 70 million is actually probably a little low. I would say in reality, we've seen probably 300 million total coronavirus cases because so many slip under the radar. But I was just a little bit of a, a subversion there. But and then there was there was this article from the from the L.A. Times when the president gets COVID, my fever dream nightmares come to life. It's like, oh, my gosh, you want people to live in fear. This person is saying, I'm terrified of rats, but I'm far more terrified of the coronavirus. How could I not be? How could we all not be? It has killed more than 208,000 of our fellow Americans. Not really true, but OK. Made many more thousands very ill and doesn't seem to be anywhere near done. Yeah, because we're not adopting the proper strategies. We're not. We keep locking down. Doesn't work. We keep trying to push masks. Doesn't work. You know what does work? You know what country went through, had their issues, is now pretty much done with the virus? Sweden. Because you know what solves this virus? Herd immunity. Because we need about 20% infected to see herd immunity. Okay? I'm going to go into that next. I'm going to go into the fear of the virus, how the world is approaching it, and how they should be approaching it. Right now, we're just talking about Trump. So, even though the size of our collective plate of worries feels Guinness world record shattering right now, lost jobs, potential armed mobs, the future of our vote in our Supreme Court, and even though I try and watch just about every speech President Trump gives because his words matter so much on these and many other fronts, when I see him throwing caution to the wind and speaking unmasked to largely unmasked crowds, the fact is the only one that I can focus on. That's okay. If they are young, if they are healthy, go for it. You you think the right, like, doesn't want to wear masks, doesn't want to lock down because we don't think we're going to get it. No, that's not how we think. We don't want to wear masks. We don't want to lock down because we know that if you're young and healthy, you should be getting it. Because it's not going to kill you. Okay? Get through your skull. We should be getting it. Because the likelihood of us dying is low. And that way, if it runs through the young, virulent, healthy population, then we can take those that are immunocompromised, those are the elderly, out of care or out of hiding, in essence. That's what Sweden did. And it's working. It worked. So forgive me all this mumbo jumbo about social distancing, lockdown, and masks. None of it works against the coronavirus. Trump has the right idea. Trump should be elected. <sighs> Anyways. Yeah, like... The reaction to Trump was insane. It was grandiose and crazy.
All right, moving on to the second kind of part B of this topic. So it talks about herd immunity. So this is a study that was released earlier this week, or about a week ago. Uh, robust T-cell immunity in convalescent individuals with asymptomatic or mild COVID-19. So it gets really scientific, so I'll just kind of break it down. I'm just going to read the summary. So specific memory T-cells will likely prove critical for long-term immune protection against COVID-19. Here, we systematically map the functional and phenotypic landscape of SARS-CoV-2 specific T-cell responses in unexposed individuals, exposed family members, and individuals with acute or convalescent COVID-19. Acute phase COVID-2 COVID specific T-cells displayed a highly activated cytotoxic phenotype that correlated with various clinical markers, blah, 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 blah. Anyways. Our collective data set shows that SARS-CoV-2 elicits broadly directed and functionally replete memory T-cell responses, suggesting that natural exposure or infection may prevent recurrent episodes of severe COVID-19. If you don't get all that medical mumbo-jumbo, it basically means that if you actually acquire the virus, you it, will, it is more likely to prevent recurrent episodes of severe COVID-19. This was a study that was done back in July. A study has found that COVID-19 antibodies may diminish rapidly within three months of peaking, meaning that any new vaccine against the disease might only offer temporary protection. Of course, that was not peer-reviewed. Now it has been, but adds to a growing body of evidence suggesting the human body cannot produce long-term antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. That's a problem. Why would we take the vaccine every three months? Because this virus, it's well known to mutate. People always have wondered, they always wondered why people were getting lesser forms of the virus. That is likely to do with they got a lower viral load and they had specific T cells because the common cold and flu are forms of coronaviruses. Don't know if you knew that. They are forms of coronaviruses. So if you have had the common cold, the flu, in the past few years, then you are likely to have a reduced exposure or a reduced, a reduced effect from coronavirus. Okay? So getting it is better than receiving getting it and getting over it is better than receiving a vaccine because the vaccine the antibodies will go away after a few months the t-cells last much longer and are much more effective at preventing serious cases because by all accounts this virus is going to be with us for a very very long time this was something that anthony fauci the twit who runs the coronavirus response in the united states and trump is chosen very poorly to listen to him because he's been wrong often. This is something he said back in June. Uh, I doubt seriously that any vaccine will ever be 100% protected. The best we've ever done is measles, which is 97 to 98% effective. Um, oh, that would be wonderful if we get there. I don't think we will. I would settle for a 70, 75% effective vaccine, because that would bring you to that level of would be herd immunity level. So that's, I'm glad you mentioned that number because the CNN poll and other polls have shown that about in this neighborhood, about a third of Americans are not going to get the vaccine. They say they're not going to get it, even if it's free and easy to get, um, or that they're very, very hesitant to get it. If only say 70, 75% of Americans are willing to get the vaccine, and it's only, say, I think you just said 70, 75% effective, is that going to get us to herd immunity? No, unlikely. And that's one of the reasons why we have to make sure we engage the community as we're doing now to get community people to help us. Okay. So addressing what he was saying, of course, he's saying that he would be happy if the vaccine was 70% effective, was effective in 70% of people. What? 
They'd be happy if it was effective in 70% of people. Of course, a lot of people aren't going to get it because they realize that the antibodies are only going to last so long, and so it's going to be ridiculous. So why are we pushing for a vaccine? Why are we continuing to live in fear of this virus? Why are we continuing to push these nonsense propositions of lockdowns when the idea is, oh, we are, we're going to get to a vaccine and the vaccine will solve everything. And then once we have the vaccine, everything will return back to normal and everything will be wonderful. No, that's completely moronic. How can anyone believe that? The vaccine has a fleeting effect. You know what has a longer lasting effect? Actually getting the virus. Sorry, getting a little heated because this is stupid and people are dying. I want to see, I don't want to see anybody die. But the lockdowns are not preventing death. The masks are not preventing death. The vaccine will not prevent death. We just have to accept that the coronavirus is a part of everyday life and try and protect individuals until we can reach some sort of herd immunity and find better treatment options. Even though we already have hydroxychloroquine, but the FDA decided to make more money instead of saving people's lives. There should be a massive, massive lawsuit, massive class action against the FDA, the NIH, and Canada Health, or Health Canada, sorry. And everywhere in the world that has banned effective treatments because it has caused people to die. Because people are going to die from this virus. We're not saying it's a hoax. We're saying that it affects other certain people more than others. I can't believe I have to say this practically every three weeks. But some people have tiny, tiny, tiny brains. And don't review any of the literature, any of the studies, any of the data. And then those people with those tiny brains freak out when other people who have common sense actually act according to their own conscience. This is a video of something that happened. It's in the UK, but it's happened everywhere. This is a video of a man kicking a teenage girl in the face for not wearing a mask. Really, the guy that like just threw him down to the ground. Hero, you're a hero. <laughs> He's totally a hero. Like I would give that guy ten bucks for that. It'd be like, good job. <laughs> but that's that's what happens when people live in fear. There's another video that I saw today, where there was a funeral and they had socially distanced, and there was two sons and they gathered together to grieve with their mother over the loss of their father. And the guy stops the funeral and breaks them apart. Utterly unacceptable. We cannot live in fear. Reopen. If you are sick, stay home. If you're not sick, go out. Do your business. Reopen. Because people are dying. And the governments do not care. Until we step up, stand up, and say enough. Anyways. All right, so next, moving on. Next story is, well, it's not really a story. It's a group of stories. It's a group of stories. So uh, a couple days ago, there was a protest from Ohio State after school reports hate crime by black assailants against white students. So early last month's protest, the school's handling of a hate crime involving black assailants and white victims. They're required by the Clary Act to report crimes that occur on and around campus. Um, basically describes the scene, black male standing across the street yelled a racial slur, the two exchanged word, and the suspect that initiated the altercation ran towards the victim, punching him in the face. Two other students approached the police to report a similar incident from around the same time. These students said a black female in the office campus area pulled up next to the victims in her car and yelled the same racial slur. The students ignored the driver and then she followed them or came across them again, getting out of the car and attacking the female OSU students while a black male who they believe to be the same man who attacked the other student, attacked the male. 
So clearly, if anything can be described a hate crime, that's a hate crime. It does not matter what race you are, you can still commit a hate crime. It does not matter what race you are, you can still be racist. Racism is just, you think that one person should be judged based on the color of their skin and not by any other factors. You think that some races are better than other races. That's racism. That's like textbook, basic, simple racism. These people were textbook racists. But there was a protest because they're like, oh, if you indict them of a hate crime, then they'll die. They can't be guilty of a hate crime. They're black. That's nonsense. Especially considering that there is abs this is a hate crime that actually happened. This hate crime, so this is a story from mid-July. So this is an alleged hate crime. It's been now essentially proven that this never happened. Three weeks after an alleged racist attack on a biracial woman in downtown Madison, police and the woman's family are saying little to nothing about whether the authorities are any closer to identifying the perpetrator. Because it never happened. She was stopped at a stoplight around 1 a.m. when she was approached by four white men. One of them ra yelled a racial epithet. The only problem, and they sprayed her with lighter fluid and lit a match on her, setting her face and neck on fire. The only problem is she was stopped at a stoplight. There's cameras. Now, unless these men are flipping Batman, which I really, really doubt, this never happened. She faked it. It is a hoax. And even though it is essentially guaranteed that it is now a hoax, she's not charged. None of the websites that have published her story have issued retractions or apologized. And the BLM that started some riots over this, all nonsense. There, if you are a certain race or if you are, have a certain mentality, if you are a liberal in Western society, you get away with almost anything. Joe Biden yesterday just said that I can stay in my basement, I can stay at home because black women restock the shelves. That man is an actual racist. Trump is not a racist, but Biden certainly is. Biden has said many things though the past few months that are clearly racist. His own vice president thinks that he's racist, but said, oh no, I didn't actually say that because she's kind of power hungry. Screw kinda, she is power hungry. And then just this morning, Michelle Obama, she was blistering attack on racist and liar Trump. Then I'll just get to the, the run to next month's election has seen racial tensions at a high following the killing of George Floyd in protests, occasionally violent, occasionally violent in some cities as demonstrators clash with police and rival groups. Let's be very real. America is divided right now. And a lot of people are being sold lies. Yes, the BLM are being sold lies. The vast majority of protests have been peaceful. Yes. A lot of the protests have been peaceful. However, a lot of them have been violent too. Trump and his supporters have been stoking fears about black and brown Americans, lying about how minorities will destroy the suburbs, whipping up violence and intimidation. Actually, most of Antifa, who is causing the majority of the violence, are white. It doesn't matter what race you are, as long as you're involved in the violence caused by race, Antifa and BLM, then, yeah, you're whipping up violence and intimidation. What he's doing is more patently false, it's morally wrong, incorrect. And yes, it is racist, incorrect. Well, that doesn't mean it won't work. And when people hear these lies and crazy conspiracies repeated over and over and over again, they don't know what to think. Yeah, because you guys deflect and don't ever actually blame the real conspirators and the real issues, then that is the BLM and Antifa terror groups. You'll never admit that, Michelle, because you're a terrible person. She made a passionate appeal for people to choose his rival, Joe Biden. Yeah, oh, like, he's saying racist things, but, you know, vote for the actual racist. Michelle Obama, you pandering twit. Anyways. Last story before the interview. Uh, just recently, so as it says, it was an hour ago, grand jury indicts gum-waving St. Louis couple on gun-tampering charges. 
So a grand jury on Tuesday handed down indictments against Marco Patricia McCloskey, charged in July with brandishing weapons at protesters outside the couple's Portland Place mansion. Uh, yeah, not protesters. They broke through the gate. The couple was indicted on felony charges of unlawful use of a weapon and evidence tampering. I don't know too much about the evidence tampering. I think that's kind of silly because they seized the gun probably as they were like disassembling and cleaning it. But it is not unlawful to use a weapon in defense of your own property. They didn't even use it. They just said, get the heck off our property. Charged in the closet, each with one count of unlawful use of a weapon, exhibiting. The spokeswoman for the circuit attorney's circuit attorney, Kimberly M. Gardner, could not be reached. Koski's lawyer, Joel Schwartz, said he didn't know specific about the charges, but he's not surprised a grand jury indicted his clients. I'll certainly be interested when this is in what was presented to the grand jury, says Schwartz, who presents to plans to request a transcript or recording of the proceedings if such records were made. Since their encounter with protesters this summer, the couple has gained national notoriety and by speaking at the National Republican Convention in August. Uh, charges filed in July, so on June 28th, Mark McCloskey pointed an AR-15 at protesters and Patricia wielded a semi-automatic handgun, placing protesters in fear of injury. Yeah, the protesters broke through the gate and were trying to go in advance on the mayor's house to potentially like scare her out of her house and burn it down. These people are violent. These people are rioters, they're villains, they're thugs. They were not doing anything wrong. The government chooses to persecute us for doing no more than exercising our right to defend ourselves, our home, our property, and our family. And now we're getting drug here time after time after time. And for what? Marv McCloskey said, we didn't fire a shot. People were violently protesting in front of our house and screaming death threats and threats of rapes and threats of arson. Nobody gets charged except us. And he is bang on the money. They should have never been charged. They should have never had their guns taken away. They were protecting their own home. McCloskey's have repeatedly called protesters outside their central west end home violent. No evidence of violence. Yeah, right. Like, this is St. Louis today, and I could already tell they're exceptionally biased. An apparently undamaged gate. Yeah, no. <laughs> the gate leading was damaged at some point. Oh my gosh. Like, how do you get into a fenced-off community except by breaking through the gate? Stop. Like, I get so angry at the media because they're defending these violent rioters, these violent thugs... These truly evil and diabolical people and the people that are innocent, the people that are just trying to defend themselves, their family, their property, they're indicted, given charge, given meaningless charges and sent to jail. I spoke last week about the guy that was given charges after he clearly committed an act of sense defense and he killed himself. The left and the political left and the mob rule that they're trying to push is despicable it is violent it is extremist and it is evil and i don't want any part of it all right anyways so that's the end of our news segment for this week uh so we also have for you guys a interview i'm going to be interviewing josh andrus and he's the executive director of project confederation here in kenda so a lot of our American listeners might not get a lot of what was spoken, but those of us in Canada, especially of those who are more on the political side, um, I would advise you and encourage you to get involved in this organization. Uh, they're trying to get a better deal for Alberta because uh, separation and independence, it's kind of the last option. Right now, Alberta is getting pushed around, abused, but... As long as things change, we're willing to stay. If things don't change, then who knows? We might not stay. We might leave. So stick around. Watch the interview. If you want to learn something about Western Canada, about potential independence, about how to create a better deal for Alberta and the West. So take it away. All right. So today we have a special interview. Today we have the Executive Director of Project Confederation, someone by the name of Josh Andrus. So if you could just do a quick introduction of yourself and maybe a tiny bit about your organization. 
Um, my name is Josh Andrus. I am the executive director of Project Confederation, an independent third-party organization directly focused on seeking a better future for Alberta and the West. Um, I founded the organization about four months before the 2019 Canadian federal election under the premise that we needed true reforms to the Confederation in order to make it viable. Um, uh, we are a subsidiary of the Alberta Institute, which is run by Peter McCaffrey. It is a free market think tank based in Calgary. And um, that's, uh, we feel that it's time to pressure our leadership to take the initiative and, and fight for true reform and succeed this time. So that's what mm -hmm. we're in for. For sure. Uh, so what would you say would be the primary focus? Like, I know you, I know you mentioned that you want yeah. to kind of a new, a new deal and to, to work yeah. with Alberta and a better, a better deal for Alberta in the West. But what would you say would be the primary focuses? Um, in terms of, uh, we have two different, uh, deliberate prongs as you were. Um, we have this first prong is constitutional changes. Um, which are, you know, we believe that Alberta is being shafted by the West or by the East. And <laughs> it's just well, um, in the sense that we, we don't have, you know, proper representation from our government structures, not necessarily our elected officials. Um, and the other prong is more autonomy within Canada, um, setting up uh, a firewall, essentially. Okay. Uh, and can I, I have briefly, can you briefly describe the firewall for those who are a little less aware. The firewall letter, yeah, the, the firewall letter was written uh, in 2001 by five prominent Calgary political minds, including Tom Flanagan, Ted Morton, um, Ken Bosenkuhl, Rainer Knopf, and the last one is obviously the most prominent, Stephen Harper, mm -hmm. uh, who went up to become the prime minister. And the firewall letter essentially made the point that Alberta in particular was being mistreated by federal government policies and that firewalls needed to be built. So government institutions needed to be built to properly um, protect Alberta's interests on the national scale. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I only had sort of a, a basic understanding of what the firewall was, but that definitely kind of painted a clearer picture. Uh, so you certainly you certainly described Ottawa's treatment of Alberta slash the West as unfair. Uh, could you explain or elaborate more into that? Well, I don't think that anybody could possibly describe the treatment of the Alberta and the West <laughs> as fair. And, and this goes back um, about over 150 years now. Of course, you all we all remember uh, when Justin Trudeau famously forgot Alberta in his Canada Day address at our 150th anniversary. For sure. But it, it almost rings true because in 1868, it was uh, the, the Dominion of Canada purchased uh, what was then called Rupert's Land. And that was essentially everything west of uh, on current present day Ontario. I don't think BC was in that. I think BC was a separate addition. Okay. But um, what that what the reason for purchase was essentially to mine our resources or not our resources at the time, but mine the resources to benefit the existing population in uh, upper and lower Canada at that time, uh, mm -hmm. as we now know Ontario and Quebec. And we became a province and very early on, it became clear that or we weren't a province at the time, so we were a territory. And very early in that period, it became clear that they were, you know, to the population out here, to the voters out here, that Alberta, or the at the time, the Northwest Territories was being mistreated. Mm -hmm. And the fight over the rights to Crown land and revenue generated by Crown land. And that fight through territorial governor, uh, Sir Frederick Haltain, um, he fought for provincial status. Um, essentially, when you become a province, you have more rights. So they, they fought for rights. And at the time they did achieve provincehood, but mm -hmm. the initial idea was to create a single province um, of Buffalo, which encompassed both Alberta and Saskatchewan, of what is now Alberta and Saskatchewan. And that essentially became two provinces. And we did that because uh, at the time the East was terrified of a single, uh, of another single uh, English-speaking region mm -hmm. dominating then the French speakers would be pushed out. Uh, yeah. uh, that might continued after we became a province. Uh, we became a province, but we did not get our uh, ownership of our natural resources until 
shortly after uh, the stock market crash of 1929. Mm-hmm. I think the I don't have the date in front of you. I think it was December uh, 1929. Uh, at the time, I believe the premier was uh, Brownlee, John Brownlee. Um, he went to Ottawa and secured ownership of our natural resources heading into the depression. Um, and then fast forward to, to present day with uh, Bill C-69 and Bill C-48, um, essentially entitled the No Pipelines Law by mm-hmm. some of our federal officials and others. Um, those laws are d- deliberately targeted at landlocking our energy industry. Um, federal government seems dedicated to, sh- to causing as much damage to our industries as they can. And mm-hmm. those bills are even showing up today. Justin Trudeau said that, um, hinted at uh, using Bill C-69 to shut down the proposed Alberta to Alaska Railway that was approved by the president last week um, and much, much celebrated by our elected officials. And so nothing has changed in 150 years, despite the fact that Alberta has contributed so much to the fabric of Canada and we're still treated only. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's it's certainly appalling how Alberta kind of gets cast aside, even though we're sort of the breadbasket of almost all important national resources to the country. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Shocking. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I know, I know. It's it's shameful. I talked to some of my friends in the states and in other places around the world, and they're like, "What? Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." That's kind of the way it is. And they're like, oh, I had such a false misrepresentation of Canada. I'm like, everyone does. <laughs> yes. All one big. Everybody knows everybody up here, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I knew the guy in the igloo over there, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Not quite. All right. No, not at all. That is not we are. <laughs> so I know that you have, of course, brought up the, the firewall letter as steps that could be taken that would make the treatment of Alberta slash the West as more fair. Uh, could you go into some other steps which might be taken to further make the treatment of the West slash Alberta more fair? Yeah, um, and I touched on them very briefly, but we have mm-hmm. essentially two main uh, policy objectives. Um, well, not policy objectives, overall organizational directions that we're trying mm-hmm. to achieve. and. The first of which is uh, the Constitution of Canada. Um, Originally, the British North American Act of 1867 was repatriated in 1982. But um, there are significant uh, barriers facing the West. Um, Those Mm -hmm. include representation at a federal level. Um, We are, I believe, the West is significantly underrepresented in Parliament. Mm -hmm. Uh, 190 out of the 338 seats in the House of Commons are located in Quebec and Ontario. Most of they're decided they before they even get there so we have proposed um a senate reform um yeah. which was the policy that the reform party was founded on um it's not really a a new or or even overly creative idea because mm-hmm. it is it's out there yeah. for a long time but mm-hmm. the idea is to create a senate that has effective powers yeah. um has legitimacy through elections and has equality of regions in, in that each province gets an equal number of senators, whether that be 15 or five or whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And that you can effectively get to act as a check on parliament, which in its current form, especially in its current form with the minority government that we see, you effectively have tyranny of the majority where two yeah. thirds of the population can dictate to us here how to live our mm-hmm. lives without anything to do with or without having any way to, to defend ourselves. And, and I think one of the primary areas, and this is another area that we uh, we cover, is equalization. Um, over the past years, we have sent over $600 billion to Ottawa in the form of equalization. Not direct transfers, of course, I mean, but uh, <laughs> tax dollars that go to the federal government that is not spent here, so we don't see the benefit of that. Um, and that equalization is actually entrenched in the Constitution, and Jason Kenney, current premier of Alberta has made uh, much ballyhoo about this. Yeah. Uh, Section 36 of the Constitution uh, effectively outlines equalization as a fundamental tenet of uh, Canada. Um, that was largely put in there, in my belief, uh, to appease Quebec. And for a long time, it was Ontario paying the bills. But as Alberta has become more robust, has grown and has, yeah. has become a political powerhouse where the 
opposition party right now is essentially like if you look at their front bench, it's Albert and politician Shannon Stubbs, Michelle Rampal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have not seen, uh, we've been paying the bills and we haven't seen any, like we, we've seen the impact of, of that, especially uh, in a recession. And the mm-hmm. final constitutional area is free trade, uh, specifically section 121. Uh, Section 121 reads, all articles of the growth, produce, or manufacture of any one of the provinces shall, from and after the union, be admitted free into each of the other provinces. That particular line needs to be clarified and updated with language that actually ensures unrestricted cross-country free trade. We've seen activist Supreme Court justices rule that provinces can block trade from Mm -hmm. province to we believe that uh, that should not be the case. If we can't move our goods yeah. or service and build infrastructure, what's the point of remaining in a country? Yeah. Um, finally, the second prong is uh, autonomy. And autonomy, and I mentioned government institutions, um, things like a, a, pro- a provincial pension plan. Um, so that uh, right now, it, it, that is essentially the pension plan in its current form is another wealth redistribution scheme where a young working population in Alberta is contributing um, to a, a fund that seniors in Ontario are benefiting mm-hmm. from, yeah. uh, more so than they are here. An Alberta pension plan gives us more control over our future as well mm-hmm. as it lowers premiums for those people paying into it, um, which is money in people's pockets. Um, secondly, the provincial police force, one of the biggest issues that we've had in mm-hmm. in rural Alberta especially has been rural crime. And it's yeah. not that the Mounties aren't, doing the best that they can because they are. It's that the RCMP is a federal police force with priorities in other locations. And they do things like, you know, they're dealing with human trafficking and border Mm -hmm. control and like that. And that's means that those are resources that aren't being, you know, focused Mm -hmm. in Alberta and to have our own police force would give us the ability to have policy flexibility regarding our, uh, our law enforcement. also, a uh, provincial tax collection agency. People say that this is going to cost more. Um, <laughs> I, I I agree with that statement. However, there's a lot of people that don't pay the taxes on time and penalties and things like that. And mm-hmm. if we have a provincial tax collection agency, a lot of those, I feel like the additional cost would be largely offset by the penalties. Um, I, I, okay. I don't know how to look more into it. I don't have numbers for you, but that's mm-hmm. definitely an option cost um another one and this is something that we have pioneered a project confederation nobody's really talked about it before but a provincial employment insurance program Mm -hmm. um the existing provincial uh employment insurance program is dedicated to well i mean it's it's being used by easterners while westerners Mm -hmm. pay the bill and it's it obviously given our most recent downturn hasn't been sufficient at dealing with job losses in our energy industry as well as it has been to the fisheries and places like that Mm -hmm. um there's also in alberta immigration system quebec has a very similar process in place where um they control the amount of immigration this isn't a Mm -hmm. debate about numbers of immigration it's Mm -hmm. just that there are times where federal immigration policy doesn't necessarily help west right mm-hmm. i mean there's a it's during downturn um where there's not as many jobs but yeah. it, it, but in, in boom times where we don't have enough workers we can fast track mm-hmm. things like that, yeah. right um so, and then finally yeah yeah, yeah. sorry go ahead type program and it's it's like okay yeah just ship people to the west even though the set by doesn't help anybody <laughs> yeah it's set by so yeah, yeah um, finally, last uh, in terms of autonomy is replace the Canada Health Transfer, Canada Social Transfer, and various mm-hmm. other infrastructure programs with tax points. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what that does is it gives more policy flexibility to our local politicians. Um, they're not dealing with, you know, strings attached transfers that we can build our own health mm-hmm. system and, and social welfare systems. Uh, well. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you uh, to uh, the specs that Albertans want, and not mm-hmm. with politicians and all. Yeah. Okay. And just just to clarify, for those who are listening outside of the country, and I'm fairly certain of this. So in Canada, the Senate is senators are proposed by the Prime Minister. Is that right? Yeah, so how it works is the Prime Minister of the day propose, or uh, appoints a senator or recommends it to the Governor General. Given the fact that uh, 
we may live in a constitutional monarchy, but it's very much mm -hmm. symbolic. I, I don't think there's ever been an instance where a senator has been proposed and the crown has uh, turned it down. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yes, it is technically a monarchy, but <laughs> they're, they're very similar to the House of Lords. Um, yeah. in, but it it just it's it's something that it, it's it's sure it's a timeless tradition, but we mm -hmm. need to get with time. And yeah. the country is no longer the same structural uh, mm -hmm. entity as 150 plus years ago. Yeah, actually, a little bit of point on that. I didn't add this in the pre-written questions, but Barbados, I'm fairly certain, just ditched the monarchy. Would you be Wouldn't in favor surprise. of? Hmm? I think I um, the other day. Would you be in favor of also ditching the monarchy? I I I, I haven't really thought about. <laughs> Um, let's just say I have been monitoring, uh, the current turmoil within the Royal family, mm -hmm. uh, with some degree of curiosity, um, and given everything that's going on, it, it, I don't think we'll be the first to do it. Um, but if there's a movement, I do believe that it's something Canadians may get behind, yeah. um, given, given what's going on and all the mm -hmm. endorsements and things like that, that Meghan Markle's doing, I, I, I yeah. do think that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> We're not gonna yeah. say pro or con, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I just I was like, hmm, that's a that's an interesting idea. I wonder what his perspective is. All right. Uh, so the next question, a bit of a different direction. Uh, so of course, following the 2019 election after Trudeau won, there was a lot of unrest, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and there was a bit of a push. It didn't have a ton of support, but to support a movement called Wexit. What is your stance on Wexit? What is Project Confederation's stance? Um, I, so just to start off, uh, about 50% of our support comes from separatists. Mm -hmm. um, these people, they, they believe that, you know, Canada is broken beyond repair, yeah. but they view what we're putting on the table with some of uh, with the police force and the pension plans mm -hmm. and things like that as necessary steps in the direction to their intended goal. Yeah. Um, and then 50% of our support comes from people who are fed up with the status quo and want to mm -hmm. see legitimate changes. And uh, so we do have to walk somewhat of a line. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know a lot of very good people in the Wexit movement, uh, from the Wild Rose Independent Party in Alberta mm -hmm. to the Buffalo Party in Saskatchewan, Federal Maverick Party. Uh, this definitely, it. the whole movement has a different feel to it than anything i can remember studying uh about the early days of reform uh before mm -hmm. the launch project confederation i believe that the movement as a whole whether autonomy or full independence is the outcome i, I can't answer mm -hmm. but i believe it's still in its infancy. uh that mm -hmm. being said i believe that the early days of this movement is more robust than the early reform movement there's more mm -hmm. experience uh there's guys like maverick leader Jay Hill or Wild Rose leader Paul Hinman. These are these are guys who've got experience on the benches of the legislature and the parliament. Yeah, uh, you've got guys like Thomas Olson, who's the president of Wexa Canada. So I know him quite well. He's a friend of mine. Um, who who know what they're doing and they know what it takes to build strong party structures. And you've also got you know, which was the st the staple of the Reform Party. You've got your up and coming neophytes, people like Kathy Flett, who doesn't you know, to my knowledge, have a tremendous amount of experience, but she was absolutely instrumental in the Wexit Freedom Conservative Party merger that happened this mm -hmm. spring. So it's a very good mix. It's a very good mix. Um, mm -hmm. I think this group is better positioned to make a difference than the early reformers. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of their comes from those early reformers who, who learned a tremendous amount from their experience. Yeah. And that's what makes them uni uniquely positioned to add knowledge and experience to the decision-making progress. And it makes the political foundation of what they're doing so much stronger than it was 30 years ago. Okay. I think it's a movement to be taken seriously. Okay. But not only that, um, <laughs> you've got in established parties that, it ha that have been representing the West and in conservative establishment parties for decades now. Yeah. Um, you've got Michelle Rample and St Shannon Stubbs who are vigorously defending Alberta's interest in, a, in our energy sector from yep. uh, the hostile Justin Trudeau 
government. They're both prominent. They're both dogged fighters. Uh, yes. You've got the Buffalo Declaration with Rempel, Arnold Bierson, Blake Richards, and Glenn Motts, where they very painstakingly outline their frustration with the system. You've got MLAs in the Alberta government, Drew Barnes, for example, who are fighting for more swift action on the part of Jason, uh, on part of Jason Kenny regarding yep. the fair deal process. But the fact is the polling data has support for outright separation presently. It may be a maximum of 30%. The reality is, while that it is a tremendous figure, you mm -hmm. still need a clear majority in a referendum to separate. Mm -hmm. I think that about 75% of Westerners are unhappy with the current state of affairs, split between separatists and those who want to see more autonomy. Mm -hmm. uh, the hope is that in the interim, the movement as a whole helps force our political leadership to take more decisive action towards Ottawa. If not, I have no doubt that it will evolve into something much more serious mm -hmm. and harder for the mainstream media to yep. ignore and perhaps could ultimately lead us to full on independence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, for some of our listeners, a lot of those names will be kind of, oh, who's that? And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but a lot of those names are MPs, MLAs, just forms of local and federal government. So if you want to look them up, please feel free. Uh, for, for, for me, myself, uh, when it comes to kind of the Wexit movement and Alberta separation, I would be kind of half, like, I, I do want to try and achieve a, a better deal for Alberta, a better deal for the West, because it's certainly obvious that we don't have one. Uh, however, given the current state of affairs and the current situation, especially federally, the, the chances of those requests or those demands being listened to in any way or acquiesced is minimal and i think that if we propose them and if they're, if they're rejected i think that i'll definitely move more towards the alberta independence slash separation side so that's just kind of my yeah. take <laughs> yeah 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 like when right after the, right after the federal election i was like Everything is awful. The world is collapsing. And then I was like, I'm joining the Wexit movement. And then I'm like, okay. Especially in the, especially in the Facebook group for Wexit, I was like, okay. I don't yeah. I don't align with a lot of these people. And then I kind of did some more research, and then I found your group, and I was like, yeah, you sound a little more reasonable, and it's a little more like war of attrition before saying, okay, we're seceding, <laughs> mutiny against the yeah, reins uh, of power. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, in the early days of Wexit, I was like, hey, like before we go crazy, let's maybe see what this guy has to say. And I, I tried to throw you some support early on, and then I got booted from the Wexit movement, at least their Facebook page. So I stopped doing that. <laughs> I don't, I do think that, uh, uh, to their benefit or their dismay, I'm not sure, but uh, I do believe that most parties have been distancing themselves from that uh, Facebook group and yeah. from some of the leadership. On it, so mm -hmm. I, I, I think, I think they're doing. I think that was why they've all changed their name, uh, branding, and things like that. I think yeah. they're moving away from it. So, like I said, I, I think there's a lot of viability there uh, in the mm -hmm. long term. But like right now, we're not 100. percent Even in terms of like voters we're not there yet so mm -hmm. yeah for sure okay um yeah like we've already gone into whether so i'm gonna i'm gonna modify the question that i sent you so if yep. uh, if ottawa does nothing like i i think you're kind of online with that separation might be a valid option so yeah i'm gonna switch the question and i can yeah. oh yeah you, okay you uh, i have an answer for it so the if we do separate do you do you have a preference whether it would be completely alberta independence or potentially even 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 ah, <laughs> even the idea of potentially I, becoming like a 51st state or would that just kind i of think continue the problems that we're already suffering from I think we're a little bit early on in the process to be looking at it from that point of view. Okay. Um, I, I, and I, I, I can explain a little bit more here. It's, it's a lot because I don't think we were, we're ready to seriously consider it yet. Mm -hmm. I 
believe yeah. that we have a lot of work to do before it is a truly valid option. Yeah. We need certain institutions in place to make it more viable, mm-hmm. to make it something that the federal government can't ignore. We need yeah. to collect our own taxes. We need to control our pensions. We need to police ourselves. We need to control yeah. our borders. If we have those things, that makes separation an absolutely valid option. If mm-hmm. you have those it makes it a lot easier to take that 30% maximum support that you have right now and bump that up to 60. Yeah. Right? If, if we take the steps we need, it's less of a scary alternative uh-huh. and have these things, the East has to take us seriously yeah. because then we do have an option. Like it's there. We have, we collect our own taxes. We, we have our own government structure that we can uh, operate autonomously. And Quebec has done a lot of these things and that's uh-huh. why they were seriously. Um, but we need to make that option viable. And, but that, that comes down to a lot of the stuff that we're proposing. And that's why a lot of separatists do support us, because what we're proposing is steps along the path to their goal. We just, have a, like, we just believe that while we're doing these things and getting these things in place, we should also be fighting to get some of the reforms. Because mm-hmm. in my opinion, there is a, like, there's no such thing as no deal. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if they yeah. come back to us and say, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, if you stay in and keep paying the bills, we'll yeah. give you 338 seats. And we'll give you all the seats yeah. in the House of Commons. Is that yeah. okay to stay? Yeah, absolutely. I'll stay. Do I think <laughs> that's going to happen? Probably not like that. But yeah. if, if we do these things, it get, gives us a better negotiating position. All options need to be on the table. If we're yeah. going to succeed, we need to fight. And that's what we're fighting for. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really good. Okay. So how can people get involved to help the West better its situation within Confederation? Well, for starters, uh, we currently have a pretty robust volunteer base, but we always need more. If you are interested in doing uh, policy research, making phone calls, um, showing up at events, things like that, we we need volunteers to help Mm -hmm. us. We need to be able to show that we can organize events and things like that and have people show up. Um, Sign up to our mailing list. Uh, We'll go to projectconfederation.ca and sign up. Um, You can buy a membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You can also, if you want to contribute a little bit more, if you're in a position to do so, we do accept donations. And and follow us on social media. Um, Just search Project Confederation. I don't have the handle in front of me, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've gotten a couple calls from you guys. <laughs> oh, hi. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've gotten a couple calls, and I was like, usually I'm one of those people who looks at unknown numbers, and I'm like, no. <laughs> and then finally, I was like, okay, fine, I'll answer it. And I'm like, oh, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah. We can't talk about that right now, though. Yeah, that's a bunch. Hush, hush. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All so, right. Yeah, that's that's all the questions I have for you. Uh, thank you for participating in the interview. And Perfect. Yeah, I hope that we can continue the, the plight of getting a better deal and a better situation for Alberta and the West, and that if I, the federal government will be compelled to kind of Spartan up. <laughs> we can only hope. We can, we only, can hope. only hope. That's that's very true. We can only hope. So. All right, so All right. this has been an interview with Josh Andrus of Project Confederation. All right, see ya. All right, that was a great interview. I learned quite a bit about the organization, how to get involved. Uh, if you have any questions to send to Josh Andrus, uh, send them to me on any of my social media platforms and I'll send them on to him and we'll get you to in contact, you guys in contact. If you want to volunteer for his organization, want to help him out, want to help the cause, then also let me know and I'll connect you guys. Uh, So that's the end of our episode for today. Uh, If you want to follow us on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Parler, please do so. Uh, You can easily find our links on our YouTube page or our Facebook page. Uh, If you want to listen to us, if you're listening to us on a podcast platform such as Anchor, or Spotify, um, give us a listen, give us a like, give us a follow, a favorite. Um, and as many of you know, we also have a kind of a go get funding so that we can continue to make better content for you guys, make sure it has up to date information. Because 
all of us have full-time jobs. Well, Danny and I have full-time jobs and Tate is a student, so we can't afford to put a ton of time into this. If we had some extra funds, some extra encouragement to get out there, to get the most relevant data, to do the most relevant research, we can, and the best editing software, the best equipment, then we can try and get you a very polished, very excellent video every, we would probably put it up to three times, four times a week. But as of now, we're not receiving any income from it. So we're stuck at two times a week. Also, uh, tomorrow is the VP debate. Fortunately, it is very early in the day. So I will not be live streaming the debate. I will be live streaming the reaction from the debate. So I'll be watching the whole thing, getting all the intricacies of Mike Pence, hopefully crushing that turd Kamala Harris. And then you can get my responses. You can communicate in the chat and I'll be happy to engage with anybody. So I hope you enjoyed watching. I hope you enjoyed listening. Good night and God bless.